Hi, and welcome to a special first anniversary episode of Stardust MQ. I'm Cameron Furlong. My guest today is Remy Mando. My name's Remy Mando. He is the founding director and editor of Australian space science communication organisation Space Australia. He is very passionate about astronomy and science communication and has been a huge supporter of the podcast from the very beginning. I had the chance to sit down with Remy to talk about his work as a science communicator as well as his current research and study in astronomy. I want to start off with the first thing that you said that you were really keen about, and that's pulsars. So tell me all about your your experience so far with pulsars. Yeah, pulsars have been a big passion of mine since I was since I was a young kid. I've just always loved them, and I remember reading about them when I was uh, not young. I should, I should probably say in my mid-teens, uh, reading about you know one of the first exoplanets discovered, which is around a pulsar, and so I kind of got hooked on them then. Um, what I actually love about them is that they're just kind of so mind-boggling in every way shape and form that you can think of like they're these huge mass objects compressed down into something the size of a city they've got enormous gravity um and you know they're spinning pretty fast they release these you know uh these beams of uh radio waves like you know like a lighthouse off in a distance and we pick them up and i think think they're just you know there's everything about them is fascinating and they're just so small and so compact yet so uh they give us such a big sort of output and such a big sort of sign out into the universe. Uh, and so what work have you been doing with pulsars? Yeah, so I actually uh, participate and help with uh, a team here in Sydney called the Parks Pulsar Timing Array Project. Uh, what they do, they're part of a global network of teams. I think there are three or four teams at the moment. Um, and what they do is they use pulsars to time uh, time of arrival signals um, from pulsars. Uh, and what we're looking for is over a long, over a long period, over a couple of decades, or you know, up 10, 10 to 20 years or so, we're looking for a signal that is presented in the pulsars, um, you know, across the whole sky, a correlated signal that represents a, a, a the detection of a, a stochastic background gravitational wave. Um, now, those gravitational waves are generated from the in spiral of uh, supermassive black hole binaries, and so they're very much a long type of wave, they've got a long wave period of you know, a decade or so. And so it takes a long time to actually register uh, that signal. And that's why you need a galaxy size detector, which is why we've got pulsars sprinkled across the galaxies to sort of correlate that signal from everywhere and then uh, confirm a, de- a detection of that GWB signal. And so why are we looking for these signals uh, aside from finding the cathode gravitational waves? What else can we, can we gain from that information? Yeah, so it's it's you know we've got uh, interferometers like the LIGO and Kagura and and Virgo here on Earth, and they're quite big. They've got four kilometer arms, and they're and they're, they're considering even building interferometers. Uh, you've, you know something like I think twenty or forty kilometer arms underground in Europe somewhere. Um, but even with these uh, interfer- these instruments, these massive instruments, we can only detect a certain frequency of gravitational waves. We to to get the long the lower frequency gravitational waves, the ones that are generated by um, in spiral supermassive black hole binaries, we do need to actually have a bigger detector system. And that is why we have a, a, gal- a galactic sized one with pulsars. Um, now what these, what these gra- particular gravitational waves tell us is um, how the in spiral two of, of binary black holes and, and, uh, between galaxies occurs. So it gives us a bit of a history about you know, galaxy mergers and uh, you know, how galaxies collide and, and you know, how they form and how they grow bigger, especially how those supermassive black holes get bigger over time. Uh, so it's a, it's a bit of a more of an insight into uh, the history of the gravitational wave background, which is a history of galaxies merging themselves. Right. That's really interesting. So you've also done a little bit of work uh, in academia now. So you're, you mentioned to me just before we started the interview 
that you are doing, you're in your last semester of your master's. So tell us about what you've been doing with your master's. Yeah, it's been great. Um, so I'm, I'm up to my third year, my final year, about to start my uh, final research project. Uh, and it is, it's allowed me the opportunity to sort of learn a lot about the different aspects of astronomy and not just about pulsars, for example. I've done planetary science, I've done astrophotography, I've done the history of astronomy, I've done cosmology. So all the different topics that come with learning about astronomy um, as part of the course itself. Uh, which has been great because I don't come from an astronomy background. I come from a business background. My, my original degree is in commerce. So I made a switch about uh, in 2018 and I've uh, sort of repositioned my life in the direction of my life because I've always wanted to be an astronomer and I've always wanted to chase pulsars and I'm doing that now, which has been a lot of fun. But uh, effectively, uh, the, the, the uni work I've been doing, my academic work has been amazing because it's given me a whole broad understanding of these different concepts, but also allowed me to meet people along the way and learn about things that I never thought I would have learned about. So it's been really cool. So what's what's been a highlight of your master's? Uh, I think, I've, again, I'm going to take this back to Pulsars because I love them. <laughs> but effectively, I, I've, I've kind of uh, been able to convince my, my instructors and my teachers and my supervisors along the way to let me do projects about Pulsars, even though when the topic wasn't too related about Pulsars. So, for example, I... Uh, in the planetary science one, uh, you know, it's, it was fun. It was such a great uh, topic for me to do because I learned about planetary science. But for my major research project for that uh, for that topic, I did it on, you know, using pulsar signals and in, in particular pulsar timing array signals uh, to determine the presence or non-presence of planet nine in the solar system because we could work out from the barycentric uh, position of, of the masses uh, where that would be. And we can see that in pulsar data. So that's been a lot of fun, actually. So what have you found out about Planet X? What's your, what's your standing on it at the moment? Oh, it's a controversial question, but um, <laughs> my, my, uh, my position is that it doesn't exist um, and it's just observational bias, but that's because, uh, you know, we, haven't, we definitely haven't seen it in the Pulsar data as far as I can tell, um, but also not just the Pulsar data, there's been a whole array of um, other studies that have actually concluded the same thing and, um, you know, they've come to the same conclusion, basically saying that Planet 9 uh, likely doesn't exist. But in saying so, I'm, I hope I'm wrong and I hope we're all wrong because I would love nothing more than for Planet Nine to exist. And if you all have a planet that far out there in the solar system, you know, that we haven't detected yet and, you know, of, of that mass especially, you know, how to get out there, how to grow so big and get out there in the first place. So there's a lot of interesting questions that come from that. It's almost like astronomy's own Bigfoot or something. It's like this sort of mythical mythical being, a mythical beast that, that may or may not be there and there's just so much debate around it. It's really, really fascinating. I sort of had a little bit of a deep dive into it myself recently and I've just been it sort of captured me like wow like imagine like this this huge giant planet that like so far out that you know may or may not exist it's so fascinating absolutely and look I mean and this is good science right this is, we see teams that are for this and teams that are against this and 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 you see papers that come out for and papers that come out against and that's that's a really really lovely way to showcase science especially when it's such a, a popular culture topic like planetary night like sorry, planet nine sorry and so effectively, you know, the public are seeing this, you know, for and against arguments and the public are seeing science in the works. This is how science works. So you have people saying, we've got some data and we think it's there. We've got people saying, hey, but we, don't have, we, have, we don't have the data. We don't think it's there. And yet the, the continual progression of science happens in the public eye. And that's a really good example to show this is science. This is actual science happening in front of your eyes. Because it's something that, that the public can grasp, like, a, like another planet is something very rudimentary that someone someone could just be able to okay you know i understand that and then they'd be able to see 
the discourse that happens whether between scientists trying to say whether or not it's real it's, it's really quite it's like a bit of a bit of a psychom goldmine almost <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, and and and, and if, if there's any way that we can sort of get science out to the public and the, and the method of science, and it's always going to be a good thing. And planets are kind of, especially planets in our solar system, it's kind of a hot and controversial topic. You know, um, you know, Pluto got demoted in 2006, and you know, it's been it's been a war since then. And so, uh, it's kind of uh, a great topic that lots of people get interested in. And it's, as you said, it's easy for them to grasp because it's not something as complex as a pulsar that's really far away and at the edge of a galaxy. It's something in our own backyard. We should know about it, especially if it's big. It's, we should absolutely know about this big planet that should be there. And if it's there, then does it change the actual definition of planets altogether again, which it will? Yeah, it's just, oh man, it's, it's really fascinating. I think this is probably my best segue yet. Science communication, you, you are the, the director of Space Australia. And so what was the reason for setting that all up? Yeah, that's a great question. And look, it's, it's a bit of a personal story, um, but also based with a lot of research. So um, I'm just going to take you back to my childhood. Effectively, long story short, you know, every every kid at one point wants to be an astronaut in their life. That included me. Um, you know, when speaking to my father when I was like 10 or 11 years old, um, I said, I'm going to be an astronaut. And my father, who's just a realist, and this is in no way his fault, uh, said, look, that's probably not going to be a, a good pathway for you to follow because effectively we don't have a space agency here in Australia. You'd have to go overseas. There's a lot of jobs you've got to compete. It's, it's a very competitive job, yada, yada, yada. So it kind of turned me away from uh, the space pathway and the space journey for me. And that's why I went to business and went to commerce and I had a life in finance for several years and et cetera, et cetera. But then I realized that we were about two years before we got a space agency, I realized that we were going to get a space agency sooner or later. And I, then we started doing some research two years before the space agency was born. And we started doing focus groups and, uh, and surveys and we, we polled the Australian public and said, I, would you be interested in actually having a platform that's dedicated that with space news and space events and space projects and things that you can learn about, about Australia doing in the space sector? And they said, yes, we would. And we've got lots of good data about that. And they showed us, um, sorry, but the results showed us not only what they were expecting, but also what they were wanting in terms of a product. And that's, what, that's how we developed Space Australia. We went to the market, we said, we want to, we've got an idea. Our idea is to build a platform where you can go as a one-stop shop, for all your space news or all your space events when, or projects when it comes to uh, Australia and New Zealand uh, space communities. And lo and behold, they all said, yeah, that sounds like a great idea. Um, and here's some extra things that we'd love to get out of it as well. And so we built our platform all about what users wanted and that's where we are now. Wow, so um, so has it, has it been the success that you'd hoped it would be at the start? Yeah, and and actually, it's 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 even better, and, I, and I'm I'm going to gloat a little bit here, but it's 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 kind of gone uh, too well in a way, and I'm not saying that in a negative way. It, effectively, it's a great it's a great opportunity to sort of to build this platform up to share this amazing science that we're doing from around the country with uh, with people around the world, actually. Um, but uh, it, the the downside of of it's it's growing really fast, and for that reason, I've had to scale up quite quickly. Uh, which has taken a lot of time away from my other things and my other projects as well. Um, but that's okay, because it's a pure passion of mine. I'm not complaining. I absolutely love what I'm doing. And I love that there's young people out there who are reading this, um, our, our content and going, that's really awesome. Like, for example, we just released a video yesterday on our TikTok channel about the uh, about the super the relativistic jets of uh, Centaurus A that were recently imaged by the EHT uh, collaboration. And effectively, that video was released 24 hours ago, and we've already had 28,000 plus views on that video, 
and you know people are loving it. they're asking questions how does it work what's a supermassive black hole uh you know is there heat coming off so from from just doing something like that where we're providing an education platform to people who are now being able to access this this kind of content this kind of news and this kind of stories about, and especially about what australia's role is in all of this stuff as well so uh, it's been really amazing and it's really important to to bring up the next generation of researchers and scientists is through science communication like they're not going to know anything about what's going on behind the scenes of research without it being communicated out to them through through specific platforms and that i assume was one of your goals in setting up space australia yeah absolutely so one of our if you if you, if you jump into our website we've got a few tags on there like a little hashtag that we can cite you could you could sort of arrange content into but effectively one of them is inspiring next gen and effectively that's what we're doing we're inspiring next gen um because again going back to the example of me as a young kid i wanted to be an astronaut um, i want to show young kids of today and students of today that um look astronauts not the only role in the world that you can go for to be part of space there's plenty of other roles you can go for but more importantly you don't need to go overseas to do them you can do them here you should start investing in yourself in your studies in your in your own experiences uh going to events learning about space now because in 10 years from now we're going to have amazing projects like the square kilometer array up and running and you want to be part of that that story in, in 10 years from now but you need to invest in that now to get there yeah yeah 100% and another thing that I find is really great to inspire people in and get gain interest in uh, astronomy which was one of the one of the things that really brought me into it was is astrophotography and I've seen some of the photos that you've taken and they're absolutely fantastic what was it that got you uh, interested in doing your own astrophotography yeah, so I, I love space, obviously, in every way, shape, and form. But effectively, I live in the smack bang in the middle of Sydney. I live in Balmain, about uh, 700 metres across from, from the CBD, um, across the water from the CBD. So I'm really in the most, one of the most light-polluted places in the Southern Hemisphere um, that you can think of. Um, I, you know, I first got my telescope, and I, I, I got it for the purpose of science. So I actually do a little bit of science with my telescope as well. I, I capture images, I capture spectra. Um, I'm still learning all that stuff as well myself. I'm not actually like I don't 100% use the science. I'm still learning the science and part of the process of you know, image reductions and the process of taking proper astrophotography photos. Um, but along the way, I actually found out that I can actually just by using a few filters and some special software and, and a nice camera that I've got, um, I can photograph deep space imaging. And I and, and only last night and night before I was doing some uh, deep space imaging, I caught some galaxies and the range of the galaxies I've caught from last night and the night before are somewhere between 80 million and 256 million light years away. Um, I've been able to capture uh, a quasar at uh, 7.3 uh, billion light years away. Uh, and this is like, I'm, I'm in the middle of Sydney. I'm, I'm, like, I'm right in the middle of a city where there's so much you know, light pollution here. So it's pretty amazing that with a small eight inch telescope, I'm able to still get 7.8 billion year old light uh, coming through and then being able to sort of define that and, and resolve that quite clearly uh, enough to produce uh, imaging from and put it out there in the world. So how are you doing that? Uh, what's your process in, in getting cutting through all the noise and getting those really fantastic looking images? So I cheat a little bit. I, I, I'm pretty open about this, but I think I cheat because I, I speak to my other friends who are astrophotographers and they've got the whole image processing pipeline. And I'm sure astrophotographers listening to this will actually understand what I'm talking about. But, you know, people do flats, they do darks, they do biases, they do all this sort of pre-imaging. I actually don't do any of that. I've, I just got this software that does live stacking um, and it comes with the actual camera or you can get like other, other platforms like SharpCap that do it. And effectively what it does, it takes a photo and looks at that photo and you can set the parameters of, of what the... What, what the minimum parameters are, 
of brightness and things like that. But it takes, it takes a look at the photo and goes, yes, this photo has, um, has reached the minimal parameters you set out. I'm, I'm gonna keep it. And it takes the next one and it measures it against that first photo and says, does this match the, the same parameters? If so, add it on top and therefore increase the signal to noise ratio. And if it doesn't, reject it and go for the next photo. So effectively, I'm live stacking the images as I'm taking them. And so my image processing pipeline takes not very long at all. In fact, I have my images ready to go as soon as I come downstairs on the rooftop. And pretty much I send them out the next morning to do a bit of cleaning up on Photoshop to increase contrast and stretch it a little bit. Um, and then it's a black and white camera. So I add color using nothing but an Instagram filter. So it's literally just washing over with Instagram. And that's what, that's what produces the image. So these photos aren't technically science imaging photos, but they are enough for me to share on social media and say, look, even from the middle of a city, you can get a quasar at 7.3 billion light years away or a galaxy at 256 million light years away. And that, I assume, has garnered a lot of uh, a lot of interest from the public as well by, by just uh, people seeing that. You get a lot of questions about the objects you've imaged and, and, and stuff like that. Yeah, absolutely. People love it. I mean, it's, it's unfamiliar for people to see uh, such a such such beautiful target, um, you know, being presented through things like social media. And so effectively, uh, what will happen is people will ask questions, you know, what, what are we looking at? Uh, how old is it? Um, how far away is it? What did you use to capture it? So it's it sort of the whole astrophotography conversation comes up and it's, uh, it's, it's, quite, it's quite nice to actually talk about it uh, publicly with people. And how long did it take for you to get to the, the level of quality in photos that you, are, that you are taking now? And how difficult did you find it? Was it difficult, not too difficult? Yeah, look, it's, I've only been doing this for two years, to be honest. Um, so I'm, I'm still very much a new person to this. I, as I said, I don't really know how to complete the proper stacking pipeline process like that, that professionals do. I don't have uh, the, the I haven't done darks and bias. Like I, I, I know how to work it in theory just because I've done the course, but effectively I've never done it physically. Um, and one of the big things that really improved for me was a change in camera. So I went from a, uh, a planetary imaging camera to begin with and to, to a deep sky camera. And that deep sky camera has an internal cooling unit. So that really changed the game for me because it got rid of a lot of the thermal noise um, out of my imaging process, which actually cleared up the noise in the images, which made them a lot nicer to use as well. Okay. And so that really sounds like it's, I mean, aside from the obvious monetary cost, the time that you put into it, it doesn't seem too strenuous of something for anyone to really get into themselves. Absolutely not. And look, I mean, there's, there's different levels of doing this stuff, right? There's, there's, you can do deep sky imaging and you, you can spend all the money to get all that extra hardware, et cetera, and, you know, to get some deep sky images. But there's just enough, there's just as equally as, as much beauty as imaging the planets, for example. Um, and that's just, uh, that's, I don't do that because it's not my preference, but many people do all imaging nebulae. Um, and you don't need to spend a lot of money for that. I mean, I, I would always recommend people spend at least a minimum of $1,000 on their telescopes, only because the, the price range is uh, from $1,000 upwards are the ones that include the motorized engines that have the go-to tracking. And I think that's a massive game changer. Without that, you kind of get frustrated very easily and imaging is almost impossible. Um, but effectively, you know, for a small amount of investment of, you know, $1,000 or so, um, you can easily take amazing photos of the moon, of the of nebulae, of, of the planets, um, of star fields, star clusters, globular clusters. Uh, there's a whole range of objects that, within the Milky Way galaxy that are, that are very accessible to everyone. Stardust MQ is a podcast made with the support of the Macquarie University Department of Physics and Astronomy and the Macquarie University Physics and Astronomy Society. Thanks to Oliver Doherty for editing this episode. Our intro music is by Poddington Bear and our outro theme is from Ketsa. I'll talk to you next time.